Welcome to Doorknob Comments. I'm Dr. Farah White. And I'm Dr. Grant Brenner. Thank you for joining us on Doorknob Comments, a podcast that we created to discuss all things involving mental health. We take the view that psychiatry is not just about the absence of illness, but rather the positive qualities, presence of health, and strong relationships, and all the wonderful things that make life worth living. The show is named for a phenomenon that sometimes happens at the end of a therapy session, when the patient may mention something important or something they're conflicted about right as they're walking out the door. Sometimes they may have been quietly thinking about it the whole session without saying anything at all. Equal parts frustrating and intriguing. It leaves the therapist holding the emotional bag. Today, we want to talk about something that's important to all of us all the time, but especially important right now in these troubled times. Uh, Grant, do you want to say a little bit about Well, I think we're talking about self-care, and I guess implicitly it's also about community Mm -hmm. and about other people, either, um, you know, how we take care of other people and how they take care of or don't take care of us. I think today we're going to focus on one's relationship with oneself, and certainly the the COVID-19 coronavirus uh, activity is got everyone uh, in, on the planet paying attention in a way I think maybe we never have before. I'd agree with that. And I think one of the biggest issues really is that people don't seem to have a lot of guidance on what to do and how to do it. And um, it can be a time of great stress. So maybe this can be sort of grounding and allow people to continue to do what they need to do to take care of themselves. Yeah, certainly. I mean, the the context is kind of interesting because, you know, if you think of self-care as requiring a degree of self-guidance, self-governance, self-parenting, mm-hmm. sometimes people use that term, self-compassion, certainly, depending on your your attitude, you know, the the political and and global climate is very strange. We have this coronavirus thing, and we'll, we'll get back to individuals in a sec. But there's not a lot of trust in leaders. You know, you have the president of the United States appears to be written. cognitively well, impaired. Well, I was going to I was going to okay. say not following the no. best risk communication principles no. and essentially spreading rumor. If if mm-hmm. you look at like risk communication, you're supposed okay. to give good information. Right. You're supposed to help soothe people. Um, so who do people look to for good executive function? Uh, and it's almost like if you're in a, in a dysfunctional family, like the parents are fighting, like the CDC is saying one thing, the president is saying another thing. Yeah, and it's very anxiety-inducing, I think, for everybody. Right, and these are times when you want to take appropriate steps based on good information so you can take care of yourself and the people close to you. Of course, if you're in, in good shape, you can take care of people around you better. And the uh, the temptation is to succumb to panic. Obviously, we see a lot of panic buying, mm. which is a way for people to feel like they're doing something to be prepared. There's a lot of disinformation. So, you know, how does that apply to kind of any time? Because right. life always has periods of stress. Okay. So let's talk about on, on a more general level, what are the things that we want people to know about self-care? I think the first thing, the point that you brought up was that it's more than just 
having good sleep hygiene and exercise habits, that it's a state of mind and an attitude towards oneself. Can you say more about that? As I see it, it, it does require a lot of executive function and intentionality. The kind of the research on change and coaching, um, you know, if you look at what actually helps people get where they want to go, it's knowing the path you want to take and feeling able to take it. For example, there's some work with like who gets PTSD and who doesn't. And researchers looked at hope and optimism and they were talking about hope as knowing the steps you need to take and feeling like you are empowered to take those steps. Optimism more being kind of a general faith that things work out right. And optimism was protective, but hope was more protective. Um, having a specific plan, good information, a sense of where things are supposed to go, how things are supposed to go, what you need to do, feeling self-efficacy to do it. And I think people lose sight of that when we're anxious and filled with uncertainty. Our higher mental function goes out the window. So self-care for me, a lot of it is being, you know, staying at the helm, mm -hmm. not not giving up control. Yeah. And then the other part was that you brought up was really where that it comes from, that it doesn't come from discipline or self-criticism, but that it comes from a place of compassion, acceptance, and love. Um, I don't know if you can really link that to what you were just saying, but one of the connections that I can see is that for people who know that they might be prone to, I don't know, slip with those healthier habits, um, what can they do when they're feeling kind towards themselves to make sure that in the harder moments, the self-care doesn't go out the window? Yeah, I think they are connected. Okay. And, you know, control is not like a harsh, rigid thing, like a, a parent who shames you or tells you why why aren't you better it's and it's and it's not being over controlling like being perfectionistic or you know quote unquote ocd and trying to control everything it's about accepting uncertainty and if you give yourself gentle guidance then you give yourself permission to mess up and come back to what you wanted to do in the first place i think when people get into a blaming frame of mind they're more likely to get distracted from what's important. And so it's like a gentle but firm self-guidance. Okay. I like and that. That comes from the heart. Okay. And the other thing that I want to bring up about self-care, because I see this a lot in, in practice, is that there are things that can really interfere with our ability to care for ourselves. And things like depression, anxiety, and trauma can make everyday habits like showering, brushing one teeth, even getting up out of bed to use the bathroom um, can be a challenge for someone whose emotional state is um, really struggling. What do you usually recommend to people if they're so depressed and so anxious that they're having a lot of trouble pulling it together? So I recommend usually that the treatment it's that that's one of the things that I look for actually when I want to see how someone's doing. Um, a lot of times, like with new moms, it's really really hard to find time to shower, and if days go by and she's can't find the will or the time to wash her hair, um, that's something 
that she may need a little bit more support with. Um, and I think that for whatever reason, hygiene habits, um, which vary a lot by, you know, culture and background, uh, people seem to not be that compassionate. Um, what do you mean? Like like society um, doesn't really tolerate people who smell bad or look disheveled. Um, there can, you know, can be tough to be in this world if you can't maintain a certain level of grooming. Yeah. Yeah. Would you agree? Yeah, it, it can be. Certainly, you know, women get a lot of flack for things like that and, and men do too. They say the clothes make the man. Uh, but I'm imagining the mom you're talking about and I'm wondering kind of how was she raised? Was appearance excessively valued? And so is it going to be more likely that she'll start to get, you know, get on her own case in a very nagging way? If she's having a little bit of trouble, or is she going to say, "Well, you know, it's it's really tough being a mom. You know, it's 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 okay." And and does it help a person to make a decision? You know, after a couple of days of not showering as much as they think they should, to be kind to themselves more than it does to give themselves a, a you know a harsher time. You know, because sometimes people respond to kind of harshness, but. Even though maybe she ends up bathing and brushing her hair and stuff, on the inside, she's still feeling like maybe she wasn't good enough. I'm wondering mm -hmm. what your thoughts are about that versus kind of feeling like grateful to herself and, and building over time, you know, gratitude right. rather than kind of doing what you're supposed to do and feeling resentful toward <laughs> yourself on the inside. Yeah. I think the motherhood example is a tough one because as much as – New moms are expected to have a baby, look great, bounce back, um, and do kind of do it all. They're also expected to breastfeed and get up at night and um, really self-sacrifice for the purpose of a newborn. Yeah, I remember uh, I was reading about love and attachment, and you remind me of something I came across which showed that like caregivers, moms, as well as I think certain clergy people, mm -hmm. they literally didn't feel their own pain when they were in a caregiving mode, like the chemicals that are related to bonding like oxytocin and mm -hmm. all the stress hormones made it very easy to sacrifice oneself. And of course, you know, that kind of makes sense evolutionarily. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, you don't want someone like a mom to be so self-sacrificing that she's no longer capable of taking care of her baby, right. uh, you know, which you see with postpartum depression and other things like that. Right. Exactly. I think the more um, – let's try to think of another example that's like a little bit more mainstream and may not um, pertain to such a small population at such a difficult time. Well, I think we all are prone to do this – I shouldn't overgeneralize, but yeah. okay, in a place like a major ur urban center like Manhattan, a lot of people are, you know, working so hard. Okay. You know, they're they're working to live rather than living to work, which is the right one are you supposed to do? Um, I think you're working supposed, to live. You're right? supposed to work to live. Yeah. They are living to work. They're yeah, they're like workaholics or yeah. you know. Um and why why do people do that, do you think? Why do people kind of lose sight of what's important in life. They live for a sense of 
being productive rather than maybe a sense of meaning and purpose that's more internally driven rather than externally driven? I mean, I think a lot of, especially in this tri-state area, people are programmed to believe um, that perfectionism and academic achievement, and I mean, maybe we're talking about also a certain cultural background, but um, that kids are taught that they need to perform and that means academically, that means in terms of extracurriculars, right, that right. means in terms of looks. Um, so like psychoanalytically, do you, do you think that suggests that the way they've internalized the like inner parent is mm-hmm. that if they don't perform according to these external standards, then they're not valuable and loved? Correct. And so adopting, shifting to a more self-compassionate stance is something like learning how to be as if you had had a loving parent who, who you know, cared how you did, of course, because it is important, but who didn't make it the center of who you were to them. Right. And I think that unless people believe that their health and happiness and pleasure are should be paramount, um, it's really tough to convince people to take a day off or a week off. Um, so I've shifted into another sort of mode that that says like, okay, well, maybe you shouldn't pull back just for your own sake, maybe pull back for the sake of your brain and the sake of longevity of your career um, because there's a lot of research that shows that people need to not necessarily work harder but work smarter. And sleep properly and, and eat properly, eat properly yeah. and you want to live a long and happy life, not a long and miserable life. Mm-hmm. What I thought you were going to say is that also for the sake of their kids, because parents are like a role model, and, and if you have kids and you're you know you're never home because you're working all the time, or mm-hmm. you're miserable because of work in front of them all the time, you're not really there as a parent, and mm-hmm. that that's you know at least in an extreme, you know yeah. there, there's a lack of family. True, but I think in some parts of the world. The pressure to have your kids play soccer and instruments and the pressure to support that. Yeah. Um, At the same time, soccer and instruments? Because <laughs> you could probably play violin and soccer at the same time, right. I'm thinking. Right. <laughs> but you couldn't play baseball and piano. But you could play baseball and you could play a foot organ probably. Yeah. That's true. I mean, while you're batting. Yeah. Maybe while you're waiting you know, at the base. But That's a joke about how, how wacky it gets, right? Yeah. Like yeah. it's over um, over prescribed, over yeah. subscribed, over scheduled, and mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. but I still think what people see their parents doing is important. And if you don't see your parents sort of taking care of themselves, mm-hmm. and then you think, well, that's what you're supposed to do. Yeah, you're supposed to you know, sacrifice too much or not not care about what's really important. I remember one, this reminds me my my father worked very hard, you know. And six days a week for 42 years in the family business. And he would often talk about a dream he had that he never realized. And that dream was to buy – I think it was to buy a convertible, which Mm -hmm. he could have bought a convertible. But he would always kind of go, well, it's not really important, you know, and I'll drive it around a little bit. But, you know, it's okay, kind of. And he never got one? No, he never got a convertible, no. So sad. 
They're not safe anyway. <laughs> True. But still. Yeah, and if you have a comb over, it's definitely out of did, the question. Did he rent one at least here and there? I'm not sure. I'm okay. not sure. I'm not mm. sure. But he was a child of the Great Depression. Yeah. And so, you know, some of these problems, listeners might say, well, that's sort of a first world problem. I thought that's where you were going earlier. Like if if you have to work to survive, then that makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. But a lot of times it just becomes the default. Yeah. Gener- you know, generation after generation. Right. But I think th- this is also why they talk about stuff like lifestyle inflation um, because a lot of people, as they work harder, um, things feel more and more out of reach um, for various reasons. Yeah, and I think I think you could make a case that some of that is like the transmission of the of the deprivation of the immig- sort of immigrant generations mm-hmm. down the generational line. Yeah. Uh, you know what they sometimes call post traumatic or transmission of trauma or intergenerational mm-hmm. transmission, and it's like the the mentality gets passed on. And then sometimes you see the flip side, which is kind of like total lack of any kind of purpose. Right. What was I – I was reading that um, a very wealthy actress maybe. I forget who it was. But – oh, it was um, – it was uh, – <laughs> I'm, I'm blocking on, on their names. Um, the popular singing family from the 70s and 80s mm. from Utah. I don't know. Um Wow. Partridge family? Yeah, the Partridge family. <laughs> no, no, like a real family. The Ol- mm. Ol- not the Olsons. But in any case, they had a lot of money, but she publicly announced that she wasn't going to give any of her money to her children at all because she wanted them that to learn Marie how to work. Osmond? Yeah, Osmond, right. That's know. sort of like the Partridge family. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I thought that was really interesting because in the in the in the news blurb there was a comment from another person who was kind mm-hmm. of like, that. well, that's not the right way to do it. But I've certainly heard of very wealthy people who don't give their kids anything. And then there's very wealthy people who make life too easy. So that makes me think of self-care. You kind of want to give yourself the right balance as well. Yeah. Between some kind of insistence that you do things a certain way, mm-hmm. but with room to kind of experiment and self-correct. And, you know fail and come back to the task. Right. Right. Yeah, Marie Osmond, sorry. Okay. All right, what else do we want to say? Oh, so I think this is something that really does come up a lot, and it's easier sometimes to look at others and people that we love and just see that they're not caring for themselves in the way that we would want them to. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's very painful. It is. It is. And I think part of the sort of balance is trying to figure out when and how to intervene, when to support, and when to really lay off. Well, I think one of the reasons is so distressing is because people who you want to help them and you're not able to. And so there's a feeling of powerlessness. And when people feel like that in relation to someone who they care about a lot, it's a very difficult choice to make because depending on your personality, you might be someone who lashes out at that person. Right. It's very common because it seems like 
they don't want help. And a lot of times if people aren't doing what they seem like they could be doing, mm-hmm. the natural response people have is to judge them and blame them for not helping themselves. Or for rejecting help from others. Right. And then the question is kind of like, well, what's going on under the hood? Yeah. Like why would someone reject help? What's your answer to that question? <laughs> I think, well, what we discussed before is that it can be very overwhelming for people who aren't used to others expressing um, concern or caring uh, that can make someone feel really uncomfortable if they're not used to that level of affection. (laughs) Are you uncomfortable right now? (laughs) No, I'm just, I'm thinking about it because, you know, there's, there's um, an idea that being self-compassionate is helpful for people. Mm -hmm. And a, a lot of people sort of, recoil from that idea for different reasons. It can feel new agey or if it's too prescriptive, like it can feel like it's too – because it comes from like an Eastern spiritual tradition. But there's also a lot of evidence that cultivating compassion helps the brain in a lot of different ways. Meditation in general, which I won't go into, you know, the research on that. Mm -hmm. But one of the interesting things is if you have someone who has difficulty – with the idea of being compassionate toward themselves or others or receiving compassion, there's there's something called the fears of compassion scale, which is a rating instrument developed by uh, psychologists and you know people can can Google it. And it has three subscales and one is fear of giving compassion, one is fear of receiving compassion, and one is fear of self-compassion if I'm, I'm re- remembering properly. So I think of help rejection as kind of fear of getting kindness from others. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times it does seem to go back to some unresolved childhood trauma Mm -hmm. or adult trauma where the – and it doesn't have to be like a one-time thing, kind of a chronic not being loved or being mistreated where you don't have a a good feeling about yourself or you don't have a secure sense of self. And then it's like kind of why do I deserve it? That's it. But that, that scale is interesting because it breaks it down into 13 different specific aspects that I don't think we're going to go into all okay. of them. Were there any that stuck out at you? Or? I'm sure there were. Okay. I'm sure there were. Um, you know, one thing is people feel weak if you want others to be kind yeah. to you. Um, another is a fear that people won't be understanding when you need them to be. That's a terrible disappointment if you actually take the risk of opening up and the person isn't there for you and then you kind of learn not to do this. Others are afraid of getting dependent on care from others because they won't maybe always be there for for them. People doubt the sincerity of others' Mm -hmm. kindness and people can sometimes even feel frightened or ashamed when people are kind. Those are a couple of the the ones that really resonate. Is there anything about feeling like they owe the other person? Like how would that kind of thing work in a romantic relationship or any kind of, you know, where one person is sick or suffering or and really can't take care of themselves and then the other person has to step up? 
What do you think? What What do you think is important there? No, I just wonder how it affects the dynamics of the relationship. And um, I can imagine that that can be a very scary thing and that it can – someone who is a pillar of strength in their family for decades suddenly gets sick, you know. Is that person less likely to be able to accept care from others than someone who, like, has been kind of needy all along or there's been some sort of an equal balance of caregiving and caretaking? I don't know. I'm just – Well, I think that makes sense. Um, You know, if the person's identity is organized around always being strong in a certain way, then that's pretty common, right? When people need help, they become really irascible and difficult. Mm-hmm. It's a hard pivot for people to make when they've always been, as you said, the pillar of strength. And it's it's not always the case that there's a kind of a healthy give and take. Right. Uh, and if there hasn't really been a healthy give and take, if it's either been lopsided or transactional, then when bad stuff happens, the you know the system isn't really resilient, which makes me think about the response to coronavirus in a way as well because, mm-hmm. you know, we're seeing like which systems are resilient. There's a lot of discussion about like which countries responded well and are mm-hmm. we are we taking care of ourselves properly or not. Mm-hmm. And it can be very much like bringing people together. But at the same time, of course, it can be very um, divisive. And I think something like that happens in families too when someone gets sick. Yeah. It, sort of brings out the best and the worst. Right. Do you think that there's anything that people can do to – because this is something I think that comes up with aging parents pretty frequently, um, that balance between wanting to step in and take care but also wanting to respect someone's autonomy. What do you mean? Meaning, uh, let's say there's a parent who um, is clearly not able to, I don't know, dress herself or cook or, you know, just safely manage a household, but she's been a total balabusta for the past 50 years. What can people do? Do you know what a balabusta is? I do, but I'm not sure if everyone does. So it's like a Yiddish word for a really good hostess and um, like a kind of like a Martha Stewart. Let's say she's been a Martha Stewart um, for decades. And then all of a sudden she needs help around the house, which is totally inconsistent with everything she's ever been and known. I think you'd probably be better equipped to help her than I would. What? what how would you approach her? <laughs> no, I'm just saying – that I think that people have to be discreet when offering care. Like to sort of tactful. Yeah. Strategic. Right. Tactful, strategic to um, – Test the waters. Test the waters. Test the waters. And <laughs> to really understand what's a safety issue and what's not. Show good judgment and discernment. Yeah. When you say what's a safety issue, like stuff that you really have to – Make sure yeah, is like, taken care of and other stuff you can kind of let slide a little. Yeah, like maybe that person shouldn't be cooking, right? Because that's a potentially 
dangerous thing. And that's the hardest thing because that's been like her thing. Right. Maybe her kreplach and right. her matzo balls. <laughs> so what would you do? Would you try to help her teach like or her, her grandson how to do it so that, you know, there's a way to kind of parlay that into not a total negation or redirect yeah. it? Yeah. Or to allow people to step in for some of the heavy lifting, but still let that person oversee things. I don't know. I don't really know. Right. Like but I guess. Sort of find a way to uh, kind of make her, make her really feel comfortable choosing to take over directing people. And right. then her, her pride is preserved exactly. and she hasn't felt embarrassed in any way because you've been very um, artful about mm-hmm. it. And she maybe understands on some unspoken level what you're doing, but you're kind of going along with it quietly, tacitly. Mm -hmm. And so she accepts the role of kind of directing the kitchen. And then everyone gives her the honor that's due to her. Mm -hmm. And she doesn't have to kind of admit to feeling vulnerable. And that would be a good outcome. Yeah. And so that's, I guess, sort of my fantasy of – if we have the right strategy and if we think things through and operate from a place of intention and kindness, then maybe we get an outcome that's more like that and less like wrestling <laughs> like a dozen eggs and matzo meal. Yeah, you don't, you don't want to fight with a, a balabusta quickly becomes <laughs> someone else, right? right. Tough, <laughs> tough. Well, my fantasy is that that's kind of what you have to do to your with yourself sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, because a lot of times – People have trouble making themselves take good care of themselves because psychoanalytically we say it brings out resistance. You know, Mm -hmm. there's some opposition to it. So you have to kind of judo yourself into it. And I think one way to do that is with gratitude and compassion and acceptance and forgiveness if you can tolerate being nice to yourself. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Any final thoughts here? Um, so I think if we want to wrap up this discussion, which we probably can, um, to really think about the ways in which we want to take care of ourselves, the ways in which we want to take care of others, what is our capacity for it, um, and how to know, just kind of keep checking in, um, with ourselves about kind of a bandwidth we have for that. Well, that leaves an open question, which is, how do you stop playing hide and seek with yourself? And how can you be honest with yourself without being too honest? Right. I agree. So um, I think anything else you want to say or can we? Well, take good care and. Mm -hmm. (laughs) How I close my emails. Yes, take good care. Kind yeah. regards. Yeah. And thank you for listening to Doorknob Comments. Yeah, and have have fun. <laughs> thank you for listening to Doorknob Comments. This podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of psychiatry or any type of medicine. It's not a substitute for professional and individualized treatment services and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. If you feel that you may be in crisis, please don't delay in securing mental health treatment. Thanks.